Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Village Global's Venture Stories. I'm here today with a very special guest, Daniel McMurtry. Daniel, uh, also known as Super Mugatu, perhaps the startup all Jackson of the finance world. Uh, Daniel, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Big fan of the show. Awesome. Daniel, as, as, by way of introduction, of course, this is mostly a Silicon Valley audience. Why don't you introduce what are hedge funds and what are common misconceptions that, that people have about them, whether it's Silicon Valley and, and elsewhere? Sure. So hedge funds are really whatever you want them to be. They can invest in anything from paintings to whiskey to stocks to loans to shipping derivatives um, to mines. Anything you can imagine exists in a hedge fund. And so a lot of people make big jumps. And really all a hedge fund means is it's a legal structure. It's a limited partnership that invests in assets. At this point, colloquially, it tends to refer to uh, more liquid assets. And we have this division between venture capital, private equity, and hedge funds. But when you really dig into the space, there are numerous highly esoteric topics. And I think one of the things that people don't understand is many hedge funds are not designed for an absolute return mandate. They are not attempting to hit it out of the park. Um, they are trying to achieve very specific goals. And so some of the more sophisticated or large investors are looking for strategies that will give a very reliable source of return where that source of return is fundamentally different from other asset classes they have access to like VC or stocks or bonds. So an example of that might be, you know, there are some people who trade, and this sounds kind of silly, but they trade physical electricity between let's say Nevada and California. And they're one of three people who are able to do that. And they don't make a ton of money. They make seven or 8% on their, on their money a year. But that 7 or 8% is fairly certain, uh, has very low risk, and has really no relationship to other asset classes. And it doesn't have the interest rate exposure or other things that a bond that might pr- produce that same nominal return might have. And so there are a lot of people who invest in hedge funds where their real interest in them is a truly uncorrelated, consistent return stream. On the flip side, there are other hedge funds that are looking to really hit it out of the park and they'll use enormous amounts of leverage and they'll try to do 50 or 100% a year. But the volatility of those is often sickening or the returns are incredibly lumpy. You might only make money every three, four, five, 10 years. And so you really can't use a broad brush to explain hedge funds. You have to look at them on an individual basis. And the other thing I would note is that most of the most interesting hedge funds in terms of strategies and returns are people you've never heard of, and they don't really want you to hear of them. They're small, they're capacity constrained, they have a fixed niche, something like, again, let's say Nevada, California electricity trading. They could maybe use $100 million or $200 million to trade. They can't go any bigger than that. And so they're not trying to be these big, famous financial institutions. Um, the vast majority of, of, I think, extremely interesting, unique managers are people that you just will never come across because they already have the assets they need to manage that strategy and they're not interested in marketing. And they're also not interested in inviting competition into their space. And I think you see some similar things in venture capital for guys who do strange types of deals. There are some venture capital people where they're very uh, out there on the spotlight, but there's other people who are extremely quiet. And yet if you ask around, everybody will know who they are and go, that guy's really smart, but nobody knows what he's doing. So 
there's a similar dynamic there in, in, in the hedge fund space. Yeah. And what, what's the business that you're in um, or you're trying to be in? What's your North Star? Like in, in venture capital, for example, some people want to be Bill Gurley, which, you know, sit on boards of Series A companies, do one to two deals a year. Some people want to be Paul Graham, you know, create the next Y Combinator, do m- many deals and be super early. And there's sort of everything in, in between and even later, obviously, uh, than Bill. Uh, how do you think about the what are the uh, uh, similar corollaries in, in the hedge fund world? I just I view this as the greatest game in the world. I think it's the most fun thing ever. I love understanding businesses and how people work and competitive dynamics. And I, I just, it's all I do. It's, I, you know, I don't have off days and, and it really doesn't feel like work. I mean, some of the document editing and things like that uh, do feel like work, but the, the core process, I just really love figuring out businesses, meeting people, understanding how industries are working, looking where things are going. Um, and I really enjoy that you're never done with it. And the second you you know, the second you feel like you know everything, you're already dead. You don't realize everything's always changing. And, you know, I love talking to VC people and tech people because they are really explicitly on that spear tip of change. And one of the things I enjoy, given that, you know, our main fund invests in um, in liquid uh, markets. And we also look a lot at private uh, PE deals as well as VC and other things. And in multiple countries is I love comparing the opinions because I do think people get overly tribal about you know, I'm a I'm a hedge fund guy and VC guys don't get it. They don't care about risk and they're all lucky gamblers or VC guys saying hedge fund guys don't understand innovation or private equity guys thinking everybody else is dumb. I, you know, I think everybody has very interesting insights and doesn't mean everybody's always right. But I find it a lot more valuable to really understand where everyone's coming from um, because everybody tends to be right sometimes. And, you know, as anybody in VC knows and most people in hedge funds know, it's really not about hitting rate. It's about slugging percentage. And so I'm just looking for where are the big trends? How is business going to change? Also, as Bezos talks about what's not going to change, that's very interesting. So we like to talk to people across the board in, in every asset class. And we really want to understand who are the incumbents, who are the new entrants? Um, what is the competitive dynamic? We're very obsessed with understanding the customer. Um, why do people use the thing they do? And it's it's usually not as simple as people think. I think something that enterprise SaaS guys understand is that there's, you know, it's not just whether or not somebody likes the product. It's about, can you get institutional buy-in? Can you get through the bureaucracy? How sticky is that? Things like that. And so we're very open about it. We'll call clients and say, hey, look, we're looking at this industry. You know, we manage stocks for you, but we, there's this private company we think is really interesting. You should look at it, uh, if, you know, if they allocate to private deals or funds. Um, and uh, in exchange for that, some of our clients, you know, send us their private deals and say, hey, will you look at this? What do you think? Because I know you cover it. Um, and so I just I've never gotten tired of that. Um, every day we've got interesting stuff in the inbox and, and always meeting new people. And I always try to be the dumbest person in the room if I can. So this is just the most fun job I can possibly imagine. It sounds like there's a lot of overlap with venture capital. How, how do you think about the differences between uh, hedge funds and venture capital? Yeah. So, I mean, one of the reasons I got into hedge funds or got interested in markets in the first place was my family ran um, some restaurants when I was a kid. My dad started a chain uh, of hamburger restaurants and my uncle ran a restaurant. And that's a brutal business, absolutely brutal business. And um, some of my you know, parents' customers um, were happened to be traders. And I was just kind of chatting with one of them one day and 
talking about how hard the business was. And the guy kind of remarked to me, he's like, you know, in my business, I can click a button and I can be out of that business and into a new business. And something just went off in my head where I was like, that is the coolest thing I've ever heard. And uh, that's the case in liquid markets. It's not always that easy, but it's, it's relatively easy to change your positioning. In venture, um, it's very hard. You know, it's, it's a marriage, not a date. In hedge funds, even if you have the intention to invest for three or five years, which we do when we invest for, for a very low turnover fund, but I can get out anytime I want. In venture, it's a marriage. And one of the things I'm very interested in in venture is how people think about bet sizing in that context. Because I know some people, you know, they'll put 10 or 15 companies in a fund. And I know some people that put 100. And there's parts of both of, the, both of those strategies that are obviously scary to different people for different reasons. I mean, with 100 bets, um, yeah, you may have some home runs, but I don't, I struggle with understanding why you would want exposure to venture capital as an asset class if the book will be that diversified where you need a lot of home runs and even then you're probably making you know two to five x if things are fantastic and that's with mega home runs versus uh, a more concentrated book where you are taking the binary risk of venture a little more but you do have the ability to do a 10x a 20x fund and so i, I think bet sizing is the most interesting concept to me with venture. The other thing is with hedge funds, you tend to invest in businesses where you have a very known uh, opportunity set in terms of where the company can go in the future. You have a lot of information on the past, on comps, and you can really specifically tell what the permutation set going forward is. In venture, it's far more open-ended and most of the really great businesses, I wouldn't say pivot, but they're constantly building out new features, new functionality, taking the business in a bigger and broader direction, even if that's off of a core focus. And it takes a lot more creativity. And I think there's a real art and skill to having that sort of abstract creativity, but not completely getting out, out over your skis with it, because you can obviously delude yourself. So that's the thing I really respect about VCs is these people who are both able to have really grand long-term vision and still stay on the level. I think that's incredibly hard psychologically for 99% of people. And I think on both, you know, the, the liquid market skill set I talked about and the VC side, I think most people fail at both of those. So anyone who's able to do that, I just have immense respect for because I'm a big believer that at the end of the day, you're mostly competing against yourself. Now in venture, that's a little different because some of these deals get pretty competitive. Yep. But uh, in liquid markets, it's it's pretty rare. Uh, and I would challenge anyone to try to find an example of a hedge fund that failed because another hedge fund was smarter. Usually it's because that hedge fund had half their book or 500% of their book in one bet. And it was really a matter of time till something happened. Um, it's very hard to to lose due to straight competition in hedge funds, which most people disagree with because the only thing anyone talks about in hedge funds is competition. Yeah, it's interesting. So you're, you're a big, you're really into poker. And yes. I think people sometimes compare VC to, to poker, but I think it's, it's a bit different because I do see VC as, as very competitive in that a lot of the great deals, or some of them, uh, are obvious, and it's really about who, who can get in. Um, well, that's, that, I would say that is one of the things that makes it very similar to poker in that the pot size, stack sizes, and bet sizes can change your implied and break-even probabilities. And um, that same thing is true in in the stock market, but in the stock market, there's a lot more natural mean reversion. There's also a lot more opportunities. And so you don't, if you know enough companies, you don't have to participate in any one stock 
because it's unlikely to be a hundred X. And if it is going to be a hundred X, you don't really care if you overpay a little bit for it. But in venture, there's a very finite supply of high quality deals and you're competing against very smart people. And so that induces winners, winners curse problems. And that, that caused a lot of competition. Now, I don't know how much of an issue that is outside of the majors and, you know, certain marquee deals. Um, but I do think that's very similar to poker in that um, the, the behavior of the other participants really changes the implied odds right. and implied payouts. Is it fair to say if it's like poker, it's like Sequoia and Benchmark always? Right. When, yeah. when those guys are, are looking at a deal, um, it's a, it's a really big problem for a lot of people. You know, if you're, if you're not them, I don't know what you're going to do. <laughs> yeah. They have the pocket aces or something. They just have better hand than you as, as a default. The, or they just have, a, I, I would word it more as they have a very deep stack. Yeah. They can afford, you know, in, in finance, when there's a merger acquisition that happens a lot of times, I, I think, I think M&A in liquid markets is a lot more similar to VC deals than people think. Where a lot of times the reason an acquisition happens at a price it does is because there's one undisciplined player who's willing to pay more than any other player would. And they buy a company where even though the company is great, the forward returns are terrible. And so there's a lot of academic studies showing that mergers and acquisitions tend to destroy value. Um, and, and, and I haven't dug into this, but I would imagine it has a significant, a significant portion of that is the price they pay, not what they bought. Yeah. Um, and I think in, in venture... Uh, it's still different because the skew of the securities is so high that you can afford to pay more. Uh, the big guys can can do a lot of things that uh, to add value to the company and kind of determine their own fate that you can't do. And so, um, you know, it's an interesting dynamic. I think it's very similar to kind of playing small stacked against a large stack uh, where they can really mess with you. And it, it's just not smart to engage unless you've got some yeah. serious that I don't know about. Well, it is interesting because when people talk about how to become a great venture capitalist or, or teach VC, they, they are basically teaching, you know, how, how to play your hand or how to be smart with the hand you have uh, or the stack you have. And I, I'm more interested in how do you rig the game from the beginning? How do you, yes. you know, get a deep stack? And I, I see like Y Combinator as, as developed such a deep stack that they really can't lose. Like, um, yeah, we're very obsessed with that. You know, in America, we have these narratives that we're given. You know, we don't really, people are still religious, but we don't really take our popular stories from holy texts anymore. We take them from Disney movies and things like that. And the most common narrative when you're a child in America is of the little guy coming from behind. And when you get into an investing arena or a poker arena, or really any highly competitive arena, you realize that winners continue to win and that winning builds structural advantages. And you are disadvantaged if you're small. You're not, you know, this is not this romanticized story. It's not how it's going to happen. And so on the hedge fund side, we're very, very focused on that type of structural dynamic where it doesn't matter who's right. It doesn't matter who's right or wrong. It doesn't matter what the valuation is. Uh, the stock price is going to move because of a structural factor. And so an example of that is, Hedge funds have very strict rules about what they can and cannot own. And so sometimes a stock will change either in terms of price or liquidity or something like that. And all of a sudden, a lot of hedge funds that own it will be un unable to own it and they will have to sell it. And so then the price will drop because they are structurally unable to own it. And when this price gets low enough and they've already dumped all their shares, you can buy it and make a significant return with nothing to do with fundamentals. And if the fundamentals happen to be good, 
you're getting a very cheap price on a good asset that'll appreciate over time. Um, you see similar things in private markets. Um, you know, companies running out of money and people string them out and get a cheap price or really good terms. Things like uh, funds trying to get other funds to really overextend themselves in one position and then they fund a competitor and they try to kind of try to take out a competing fund. I've seen that happen. Um, you see funds try to ask a fund to co-invest with them on a deal that they know is a loser uh, so that they can have more plausible deniability on the loser, but then they don't want to co-invest on the, on the deal that's a winner. Um, so there's a lot of things that happen there. And, you know, when, you, when you're learning about how to be a VC or how to be an investor, uh, either in banking or as an associate or, or what have you, they kind of teach you how to box, right? And then you get into the ring and the other guy has a gun and you're <laughs> yeah. like, what the hell? And then, oh, sorry, I forgot to tell you, this is actually a very unfair game and uh, have fun out there. <laughs> and then you get shot. And so you have to be very aware that like the theory, these blogs that are like, you just do good work and you hustle and <laughs> you're going to make it. I'm like, no, um, you're going to get shot. And uh, unless you figure out how to get a gun yourself uh, or a bulletproof vest or something, you have a problem. And it's very, you know, structural advantages are paramount. So if, if we were to say, you know, in VC, structural advantage looks like an alternative model like Y Combinator or it looks like you know uh, some amazing consumer-facing brand to founders or, or content machine, or it looks like some data advantage that allows you to source uh, companies or diligence companies or support companies in a, in a different kind of way. And those, those structural advantages or guns are very hard to find in VC. Yeah. Uh, what might they look like in the hedge fund world? They can be similar to, you know, sourcing advantages exist. People, you know, if you trade ideas with people and people know what your bailiwick is and they bring you things that you have insight on, sometimes if you establish yourself as having a lot of insight in an industry, people will bring you ideas when they know that you may have the ability to analyze them better than other people. Um, so that can be one. Um, order a, a big thing is about positioning and order flow and knowing what other market participants are doing. You know, in theory and in classes, there's, you know, a billion people trading stocks and it's faceless and nameless. And that's just not true. Uh, in reality, there are, you know, especially for certain stocks, there's like 20 people that own the stock that matter. And then there's ETFs. And if any of those groups move, in, especially in concert with one another, there's going to be a big, big price movement. Um, and, and some people, you know, one of the mistakes I see a lot on Twitter um, is people will do a survey. They'll say, we evaluated 1,000 stocks or 5,000 stocks, and that signal doesn't exist. And yes, it doesn't exist because it has a positive signal in some circumstances, a negative signal in others, and they tend to net to zero on average. There is zero alpha on average in the average stock or average market. That says nothing about individual cohorts and specific scenarios. And so people mess this up all the time. And one of the things that's a difference between kind of what I call pop quant, which is what people talk about online a lot and what people um, play with at home and serious, rigorous quant is uh, Jim Simons, who found his renaissance. He talked about this. He said, a lot, they don't assume their models are right. If they find an abnormality, they know how to size the positions right. So that even if, if I explain to you what an individual system is doing, it may sound nonsensical, but if it produces positive P&L, it doesn't matter. And they're not going to ever put all their chips on one betting strategy. They might have 10,000, 100,000 strategies. And I, and I would bet you that the reason Renaissance's performance is so well 
is because they have so many of these and the real edges and how they blend them all together. But, you know, there's a lot of uh, little edges. And, and the thing I think most people don't understand is usually an edge in the stock market is not, hey, I have this one thing. It's usually I have a hundred little things that I'm doing that accumulate to a significant amount. But each edge might be 20 basis points annualized or something like that. And then there's a lot of behavioral edges in, in hedge funds. You know, if, if a lot of it comes down to, um, okay, what's your LP base? Because unlike in venture, your capital can be pulled at almost any time. And so there are bets that most managers can't make because if the bet starts going against them before it works, their capital can get pulled at exactly the wrong moment. And there's actually some good studies which show that the return of the average mutual fund investor over time is worse than the return of the average mutual fund, which means people tend to sell at the bottoms and buy at the tops. And the same thing goes for hedge funds. Um, a lot of the time, and I also know some investors in hedge funds who have outperformed the hedge fund because they add to the hedge fund when it's down and they maybe redeem when it's up or don't. But some of the best allocators to hedge funds that have made tremendous returns really underwrite their managers and then they actually give them more capital when there's something that's causing them to have a bad performance in the short term. Um, and that's a real advantage to you as a manager because if, if securities are down because there's a tweet that affected things or there's a trade war or something that has nothing to do with your businesses, and one of your LPs shows up the same day and says, hey, I'm going to give you 50 million, go buy, you can get insane risk rewards because you're the only one who's able to invest based on the fundamentals and everyone else has to invest based on flows and structural agency costs. Yeah. That is a massive, massive advantage. Yeah. Uh, talk a little bit about the LP base of hedge fund. Like how much does it overlap or differentiate between venture capital and, and how are LPs thought of? I think they're very different. There are some people that do both, but you know, we've done fundraising for both and we've talked to people on both sides, venture capital fundraising and venture capital LPs tend to want the big idea. They want to understand the team, the problem, the solution, and they want to see the skew. Um, and beyond that, there's just not a lot of, of, detail and it's a lot of pedigree and past deal experience. Um, and in hedge funds, uh, they want enormous amounts of detail. They want to see, you know, every bet you've ever made pretty much, how your book was balanced, all this other stuff. It's a lot of the ways that VCs market are actually extreme red flags to hedge fund and private equity investors, specifically things like promoting how you were invested in this as a seed and this as a seed because they view those as outliers, mostly because in VC, you're making a small number of bets and in hedge funds, you're maybe making a lot of bets. Um, and so in, in hedge funds, if you're going to make 100, bet, 100 bets and you go, hey, I made this one really good bet, people go, cool, what about the other 99? Um, and they assume you're trying to mislead them. And so there's a different marketing style. And we found that you know the marketing materials you send to the different LP bases need to be very, very different. Uh, also, VCs see a lot of decks the attention span tends to be a little shorter um, unless they really dig in. It's kind of like a fast filter mechanism. Um, but v the other thing is VC people tend to invest in VCs. Hedge fund people invest in everything and private equity people on average tend to invest in more conservative real estate -y type things. You know, there's, there's big cultural divides. There's a lot of jealousy of different factors depending on how the market's doing recently. Um, there are very few people who recognize the social benefit of just getting along with everyone and trying to understand, even if it's not what you do. Um, there are a lot of people who invest in things where I'm like, I can't even say I disagree with you because I 
fundamentally don't understand it. And I think a lot of times it's very important to differentiate between I think that person's wrong and I genuinely don't understand. And a lot of times in VC, I look at something and I'm like, I don't get it. I'd love to learn more. I don't get it. I can't invest in it because I don't get it. But you clearly get it. And so, you know, it's just different LP bases. I mean, VCs are so non-falsifiable um, and so abstract and so much upside that that's, you know, very hard for uh, a lot of people to underwrite. And at the same time, it's very hard for certain institutions and family offices to allocate large portions of capital to because they have institutional restraints um, where they need six, 7% a year and they can't really wait 10 years to get their money back. And if they lose more than two, 3% of capital, they're all fired. And if it goes up, they don't get paid on the upside. So it's very hard for a lot of different types of capital to, to do VC. Um, and so just, you know, understanding what capital bases incentives are, who's actually interested. I think it's very important if you're raising money to not go try to sell to people who aren't looking to buy what you're selling. Yes. Usually you can find people who are predisposed. They like your strategy. They like this type of stuff. They've done it before. That's a good idea. But, you know, if you're trying to raise VC and you go to a real estate family, good luck. Yeah. If you're trying to raise real estate money and you go to, you know, um, Sand Hill Road, good luck. Um, you know, you got to pick your market. Totally. Let's talk about quants. Uh, what are quants? What do they do? Uh, how are what, what are the differences between quants and in reality versus quants in the press? And and maybe then let's talk about how they impact the market. Sure. So, you know, since the at least early '80s, you've seen a rise in computerized trading, and I think that you know, in in the press, there are numerous boogeymen about quants. And the first trader I ever knew actually was a, a fairly large quant, and um, I think what, what's important to understand at a high level, if you're not involved in this space, is that good quant managers and good quant funds do not beat most fundamental managers or other processes because they're better. It's because they're not as bad. They are able to better understand what types of scenarios they'll lose in, what the severity will be, um, and how frequently that may happen. And thus, you can really assess the strategy for tolerability. Now, there's obvious caveats to this around leverage and, you know, short convex things where you can lose more money than you bet. You know, those types of things get you into trouble. There's long term capital management. Um, and a lot of people pick something like long term capital management and say, well, I won't invest in quant because of that. And I was like, all right, that is a very knowable problem and very manageable. If you're running a quant strategy that isn't leveraged, then it doesn't have the potential to do that. Um, but a lot of people run away with these boogeymen because they don't want to understand what it's doing. The earliest quant systems, one of the earliest quant systems was actually Ben Graham, the follower or the founding member of value investing in the current mindset. And what he was really doing was comparing bond yields to shareholder yields and trying to create a diversified portfolio so that he would earn an excess return without needing to do a whole lot of underwriting risk because you didn't have access to a lot of information. And also at that point, candidly, there were a lot more insider schemes and things and the market was kind of a racket. And uh, and then, you know, you've had other systematic strategies come out in the 80s. You had the beginnings of momentum and um, one of the kind of earliest followers in the modern era. I would emphasize that there have been traders you could call quantitative going back to the 1400s. And a lot of the early quant work actually came out of gambling mathematics. There's a great book against the gods. And one of the things it kind of talks about is a lot of really good mathematics have kind of come out of philanderers and gamblers and things like that. And so gambling mathematics slowly infected markets, and now markets mathematics have gone back into gambling. 
but you had trend followers. And so trend followers are going to look at average prices over time and where prices are relative to that. And the idea is, if you think about it, in order for a stock to be up, what does it have to do? It has to go up, right? So kind of so the idea is if a stock starts going up, buy it. If it stops going up, sell it. If a stock starts going down, sell it. If it stops going down, buy it. And you put some simple parameters around that in terms of exactly how much has to go down or how much has come up. And um, and then you would say, okay, so we're going to try to be long things that are going up and we're going to try to be short things that are going down. And then we're going to try to maybe balance the book around making sure that each of our positions are not the same thing going up or down. And for three decades, that produced outrageous returns. And still over a long period of time, they're more volatile, but over a long period of time, it still does well. Michael Covell has written some great books on this. And anybody interested in experimenting with things like this, I'd really recommend checking out quantopian.com where they have an open uh, UI where you can use Python to test quantitative strategies. There's also a very cool community um, and discussions around these strategies. Um, but then in the early 90s, things started to change. And so quants started to do more complicated statistical arbitrage. Um, they started to use things like Markov uh, models, different state switching models. And, um, and then you started to have, you know, more derivative trading that was quantitatively driven. And then you started to have the beginnings of uh, high frequency trading in the early 2000s. And so what's important to understand is that there are systems who are trading securities on a millisecond basis, second basis, minute basis, hourly basis, daily basis, weekly basis, overnight, half the day. And so it's a lot like kind of the Amazon. It's that there are, you know, ants all the way up to, you know, condors or something, and they're all trading different time frames against different indicators. And so it's become this incredibly meta game for the people who are at the real cutting edge of it. And I think that the extremely elite quant funds are able to succeed because they're able to correlate and understand how all of those different strategies play together. And so, you know, a lot of the people who are on Twitter ranting about bots or posting charts just, just have no idea what they're talking about um, because they don't know any HFT guys. They don't know any long-term trend following guys. They don't know stat guys. They don't know ETF creation redemption guys. Uh, it's very complicated. And, you know, there are people who are doing quantitative work to figure out how to allocate assets across asset classes for a long period of time. And then there are people who are doing quant work to try to trade over very short periods of time. The other thing that's recently become very hot is what's called alternative data or data exhaust. So the idea here being, you know, the popular one is credit cards. Uh, so we're going to use credit cards. We're going to use satellite imagery. Now, what's interesting about that is if you have information the market doesn't have, it only works if the market will then find out that information later. Because if you just know something and the market never knows it, there's no reason price will respond. So you need to be able to correlate the, the data you have with an actual price response. The problem then is if anybody finds that, the other people start trying to trade it. And then just like poker, they try to adjust your odds. And so even for companies where there's very good banking and credit card data on, let's say, retail sales, they will move the stock so much that even though they beat, the stock might trade down because it's already moved past the level. My favorite is actually now, so now there are raw credit card data panels and proprietary credit card data panels, and then there are companies which sort of clean the credit card data and provide you with, you know, company by company information, and there's, you know, all these different iterations of the data, and those come out on certain days of the week. So now there are companies who buy the credit card data earlier, have their data teams clean it, and then they front run the release of the credit card data. So there are these little meta data release trades, so it's not just earnings anymore. People are trading, you know, 
a, a Tuesday morning release of a credit card data panel. Uh, and it's really them against six other hedge funds who have the ability to do that. And at that point, it is a poker game because it's six players. And then they try to hedge the, the market uh, passive participant risk. And so it's gotten very, very meta, these short-term price movements. And, uh, and, and, I'm, and I'm just going to enlighten, you know, I don't want to offend anybody because I have a lot of people who work or friends who work in this field. But the extent to which these metagames have gotten out of control is absolutely insane. And if you're a data nerd or you're, if, you're, if you like games, like I just love board games and video games, it's fascinating because the second a strategy exists, immediately someone's thinking, how do I game people who are trying to execute that strategy? And then it just, it's turtles all the way down. Yeah. Speaking of turtles all the way down, uh, crypto. <laughs> uh, yeah. why, why do so many hedge funds uh, hate, hate crypto and any lessons to be, to be drawn from that? Yeah, so there's, there's, I really don't think the reason a lot of people in financial markets hate crypto is the tech. Yeah, you have some people who are gold bugs or say, oh, it's magic internet money or whatever, but I I just don't think that's, like, who cares? Um, And uh, all currency is faith-based, and if Bitcoin does what it says it does, then it's a question of whether or not people will believe and use it, and, you know, then there's the power usage issue, whatever, but that's not really the problem. The problem is, when you have an asset class that's really hot, inevitably people come out of the woodwork looking to drum up bullshit projects to get retail money in to fleece them. And it's been happening as old as you know humans are. And what tends to happen in markets is there's usually one sector or one topic that's really hot. And there are all of these stock promoters, security promoters who flock to it. So in 2014, 2015, it was biotech. And 2016, 2017, every scumbag that everyone on Wall Street has ever met, the worst people, people who take people's retirement accounts, promising them a cure for grandma's Alzheimer's, those people all went to crypto. And so you had like a cohort of like really well-meaning programmers who were like, we're going to change the world with this tech. And you'd call a hedge fund or somebody and you'd say, look at this. And five of the people associated it would be just grade A scumbags 20 or 30 years into being a piece of trash who everyone hates, but because they went to the West Coast, nobody knew who they were. (laughs) And West Coast people, no offense, generally do not do good reference checks, in my experience. And so you had a lot of really not good guys and people were willing to hire them because they said, oh, he's effective at raising money. And you go, yeah, he's effective at raising money. And he's also got two securities fraud convictions. Um, And they flocked to this like... um, moths to a flame because this was an unregulated security market, completely unfalsifiable. Nobody, nobody knew how the tech worked. Even most people at consensus and things like that had no idea how any of it worked. It was just buzzword mayhem. Half of these projects didn't exist or were just, you know, forks of an existing project. And so then you had a situation where you had, you know, probably, I don't know, 20 to 50 projects that were legitimate, but you had another 800 that were not legitimate, that either the tech didn't exist or there was a massive promotion engine behind it. And Silicon Valley has such a positive attitude towards projects that they really don't like dissenting opinions. Um, they like non-consent, the non-consensus thinking when the non-consensus thinking is orthogonal to existing thinking. So if you just have a different idea, Silicon Valley is like, oh, that's interesting. It's creative. But if you go, no, this is bullshit in Silicon Valley, they will eat you. It's not good. They don't like that. So that's and it's an important cultural nuance. And so as everything was ramping 2016 and 2017, Almost everybody in conventional finance who started to work on this was digging up every telltale fraud sign they'd ever seen. 
And meanwhile, you have these kids who are shouting about, you know, well, we're going to take down Visa and we're going to take down the banking system. And one, it was clear they didn't understand how the banking system worked in the first place. And I'm not saying they can't, I'm not saying they can't take down the banking system on a 20 or 30 year basis or maybe 10 year basis. But you had people who like don't know how a bank works, who are like, we're going to disintermediate banking. I was like, maybe learn basic finance first. And the projects weren't meeting the specs that they were hyping. Um, and then you have this problem. This is something we look a lot. I do short selling. So I look at things that are going to go down, which is something, you know, most people in tech don't do. And one of the things we look at is if you, let's say you have a hundred companies, if you have a hundred companies and 10 are fabulous, they're world changing companies. If you're a venture guy, you can kind of get away with buying that 10 and just riding it out. But in almost any other market and, and in venture a lot too, if 50 of those companies are zeros, that means assuming they all got the same money, half of the capital that went into that space is going to get vaporized. And after that happens, that means half of the money that went into the space will never look at that space again. And the other half likely goes down in sympathy with it because it's unlikely that people didn't have multiple bets. So even if two or three of my bets go up a lot, if you know another two, three, five go down to zero, my aggregate return might be okay, but I'm going to go, man, that's really dangerous because if I didn't have those two or three, I'd be really, really sunk. And so we see this over and over again in sectors and topics that get hot. Cannabis is another one where there are some good companies, but there's a lot of promotions and the promotions vastly outnumber the legitimate projects. And then the market cannot bear the loss of capital that the promotions start. And so one thing that I advise friends of mine who are doing startups is if you see that happening, because sometimes startup guys will go like, my company's good. I really hate this competitor. I'm like, all right, hate them, like them, whatever. But if you're in an industry and you start to see a significant portion of the capital being invested in your sector going into complete BS projects, you need to raise money really fast or exit because you're about to go through a serious drought. And that's a very strong piece of advice to any, to any entrepreneur that I think isn't given enough. If, if, if you are looking at your competitors and saying these guys are not legitimate, understand that when they go down, it's going to hurt you. To one extent or another, they're chained to your ankle. Talk, talk a bit about short selling because because in venture we, we, we don't understand short selling uh, educate uh, venture capitalists what, what they should know about short selling how, how how you think about it and what makes a great short seller sure so short selling is brutally hard you know mechanically what you're doing is you're buy, borrowing a share of something from somebody else you're selling it and then later you're buying it back and you give that share back to the other guy and if you borrowed it when it was worth a hundred and you buy it back when it's worth 50 and you give it back to him you keep that fifty dollar difference that's the basic mechanic. The problem is there's a finite number of shares. So what's commonly misunderstood is if you own a share of stock and I say, hey, can I borrow it? And you go, sure. And I have your share and I sell it to somebody else. Now I'm short a share, right? I owe you your share back. But now two people own that share effectively. So it actually increases the number of people who own the stock. A lot of people talk about bear raids and things like that. And there are instances where certain people will drop reports trying to knock a stock down with something scary. But that's a really not advisable strategy for a number of reasons. It tends not to work over time. There are a few people who do it well, but it's really not advisable. It's very dangerous. Clients do not like it. It's a much overhyped issue. In a correctly functioning market, you know, there's kind of two types, two reasons you'd be short of stock. Okay, so one is, let's say I really like Facebook. I really like Google. I really like... Amazon, a couple of the stocks. And I go, okay, cool. These are all the stocks I like. And then I look at my book and I go, hmm, all of my risk is on technology. And if technology as a group goes down, that'd be bad for me. 
So I may short some other technology companies that I think will not do as well as those companies. So that if technology as a sector goes down, I don't have as much exposure to that. And so that's called factor hedging. I am not shorting because I hate those companies. I'm shorting because I want to have less risk on the sector. And usually so that I can allow myself to express a more bullish view in the companies I do like. So a lot of short selling is happening so that people can maintain more long exposure. And actually people who, you know, a lot of people in Silicon Valley may, may not like, like Jim Chanos, who are you know, vocally against Tesla, um, are actually very diversified short sellers. They're short 50 or 100 companies. And so they talk a lot about things that, you know, either get press or that they care about or whatever, but they're never like betting their firms on any of these bets. It's very diversified. And because it's very diversified, they are able to maintain long exposure in, com in companies and markets, even when the market crashes. And what that allows them to do, and in some, some people's cases, what they do is they basically go 200% long some stocks, and then they go 100% short stocks they think will go down. And usually the stocks they're shorting are stocks that are reliant on access to capital. And, um, you know, so essentially, if you're thinking about VC, you know, you're investing in companies that don't need a raise if you think that VCs are not going to have a lot of money to put out next year. And you're betting against companies that are going to have to raise in six months when nobody's going to be putting money out. And so the idea being, if the market rolls over, capital markets dry up, the, the companies that have fortress balance sheets and all this money, they just keep chugging along. But the companies that need access to capital, either they run out of money and they're dead, or they have to dilute shareholders an enormous amount, which sends share prices down. And that allows some people to go through something like 2008 and be up or flat or slightly down when the market's on 50%. So that's kind of a good case of short sellers. There's also some people who are extremely concentrated. And what they will do, and this is our approach, we're not extremely concentrated, but we're fairly concentrated, is we are looking for competitive-based shorts. And so when I see a smart VC as long a company that's getting to two, three, four billion dollars that has a serious amount of sales and is starting to really stick it to a public comp, we will short the guy that's losing because they're losing and they're not going to make it back. And the big indicator for us is when you have a new entrant that has a large balance sheet and has enough cash to run a very aggressive strategy for multiple years. And then you have an incumbent old school company that says, well, we're going to be disciplined. I'm like, all right, cool. But he has enough money to just burn place to the ground for three years before he has to slow down. And if VCs give him even more money, he can do it for five or 10. And um, so then it becomes a game theory situation. So we really like situations where there's an intense competition happening between two companies or more. And we see a big culture difference where one is very aggressive and, and, and smart and active and agile. And another one is slow and in denial and has a bad culture and customers are unhappy. That's mostly what we do on short selling. But on short selling, the most important thing is not fundamentals, it's positioning. Um, because at any point, you can call me and say, hey, Dan, I want my share back. And I have to buy my share no matter what price it is and give it back to you. And so if everyone's short, so the stock, if half the stock is short, which does happen sometimes, and the stock starts to move up, everybody starts to have to buy their shares back. Because if you want to sell your stock on the market, you have to get your stock back from me. So if the stock goes up 50%, you might be like, hey, Dan, give me my stock back. I want to take my profits. That means that if I shorted it at $100, I now have to pay $150 to get it back, and then I have to give it to you. But everyone else has to do it at the same time. So it might go to $150 or $200. And that's really what we just saw happen in Tesla is... That was a stock that so many people were short, and not just because uh, people maybe disagreed on the fundamentals, but because people had bought the convertible debt, and they'd shorted the stock to hedge the convertible debt. 
So as it moved above the strike price, they had to buy that stock back because then they're losing money. And keep in mind, these are bond investors who are not looking to lose money. They're looking to make a smaller amount for lower risk. And then you had a bunch of people who had sold calls for God knows what reason. And you just had this super squeeze. And that's, you know, it's a purely positioning oriented thing. And yeah, you had some fundamental improvements recently. And they've, you know, this doomsday scenario people are prognosticating about just has not come about. And so you had some people had to cover. But when you have a slight fundamental inflection up or even just a flattening of a decline and people are too short, the stock goes crazy. And so our favorite, some of our favorite longs are something where we think the business has bottomed. It's doing fine. It's not killing it, but it's doing fine. And a bunch of short sellers are still super short. That's a great entry on a stock. And so the positioning stuff is really, really important. Also, if you're thinking about short selling, you just cannot do it based on fundamentals alone. You'll just get absolutely beaten up because the, the, the supply and demand of the shares is going to completely dominate anything around fundamentals. You know, it's interesting. We were talking about momentum-based investing earlier. David Sachs had this tweet recently. He said, narrative violation, most of the money that's been made in venture capital is actually momentum-based investing, even though most people would paint it as, as the opposite, or the expectation is that it's, it's the opposite. Is there any sort of reaction to, to that for you? My knee-jerk reaction is that that's a kind of ridiculous false, false binary. Like, that's not how that works. Like, part of the whole thing, it, it, he's saying, like, momentum versus fundamental. The opposite of momentum is mean reversion, typically. And there's no way you argue VC is mean, mean reversion. That doesn't make any sense unless you're buying, like, defaulted bonds on a startup and turning it around. Like, that, yeah. I don't understand that makes sense. That VC, there is a momentum component to it, but I think it's more akin to Soros's concept of reflexivity, which is as, as price goes up, then you can raise equity at a higher valuation, which means you have more money for less dilution. So you have more money, you can hire better people, you can acquire customers faster. Winning begets winning. Again, as I was talking about earlier, winning begets winning, higher valuation gives you more flexibility to do more things. It gives you more prestige so you can hire better people. It gives you more money so you can hire better people. Yeah. And it, it makes it easier to acquire customers because they know who you are. Yeah. Um, so there's definitely a momentum component in terms of the idea flow, because if, you know, if you were the first SaaS company, for instance, like in 1995, if you called the average business and said, hey, here's the deal, you're going to run all your stuff on our server here, and you just go on your terminal, and it'll all be there, they're going to go, yeah, yeah, buddy, right, uh -huh, okay, not going to happen. But once stuff like that starts to get normalized, then that becomes an investable space. And so yeah. a lot of it is adventure is around educating the market. And one of the things we've looked at in, in deals is, you know, some companies have to spend a lot of money to educate the market because the market doesn't know what the product is or something like that. And that's really dangerous because you could spend all that money to educate the market and then somebody else can come in and just pick it up. Yeah. And so you got to be very careful that the money you're spending is actually building a moat and not just building a, you know, gold mine that somebody else can come and take. Um, so I don't, I, I think, I think, you know, there's an element of momentum. I would say there's more of an element of autocorrelation in venture and there's an element of reflexivity. And in terms of liquidity, there's some momentum dynamics, but I, the idea of using momentum to mean a lack of skill or something like that doesn't really make sense. Right. I, I think um, one of the things he's saying is in venture, there's a thing you have to be contrarian and right. And I think verse like being the hot thing, the hot thing that everyone else thinks is hot and is expensive. And I think he's saying, Hey, the way you get rich is investing at Stripe at $100 million and now it's at $30 billion, even though yeah. it was really expensive at $100 million versus the thing that nobody found in Kentucky or whatever. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, contrarian can mean a few things. So, there's a guy named Bill Miller out of Baltimore. Bill Miller uh, didn't do well in the financial crisis, but outside of that, has had a ridiculous track record. And Bill talks a lot about 
there are things that people are positive on, but they don't realize that they're not anywhere near positive enough. And that's a very powerful concept. So there are stocks that are up 50 or 100% and they're still insane buys. So think about the number of times if you bought Amazon up 50 or 100%, where if you bought it, it would have done way, 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 way better. Way better. And so you can be contrarian in that you are way more bullish than other people, even if other people are already bullish. Um, and you can be contrarian in that you're bearish, but you're bearish in the sense that everyone else is not nearly as bearish as you. And I and, and, and I have both those happen very frequently. People are like, yeah, I like that stock or yeah, I like that company or I don't love that company. I don't love. And I'm like, no, that company is the best. It's going to crush it. Or I'm like, no, that company is dead and you don't realize it yet. So you don't need to be directionally different. Magnitude differences matter as well as directional. And yeah, but I mean, there is some truth to like the, the momentum thing, but I think what allows you to capture momentum is that contrarian difference in bullishness, magnitude. Totally. I, I want to shift, uh, shift gears a little bit to some, some macro topics. You recently just published your, your commentary for the year and, and uh, of which you, you published some, some trends that you're seeing in, in housing, uh, healthcare, and, and education. What one you uh, unpack sort of the, the main points that you were, you were trying to make for each that, are, that listeners may not be familiar with? Yeah. So in 2013 or 14, I saw Stan Druckenmiller speak, who's kind of the trader I look up to most. I think he's a genius and anybody will introduce me to him, I'll be forever grateful. But um, um, he was talking about this concept of generational theft. And the idea was that there are deficits that millennials are experiencing to the benefit of older generations, things like social security and benefits, housing prices that were net shifting wealth and income opportunities uh, up in age, and we're not going to transfer back down. And it was interesting because some of the things he dug into really seemed like they were true but I couldn't figure out like what would make them matter in the short term. Like everybody talks about social security all the time, but what's the trigger to make it happen? So fast forward 2016, 2017, we start looking a lot at housing and we start to see a massive structural shortage of affordable housing. So between 2000 and 2017, you went from about 11 million units of low income housing to 7.2. And since then wealth inequality has widened. And every year you're seeing at least 330,000 units of affordable housing shortage increase. So it was 7.2, now you're 7.5 and change, some range change, you're over, you're easily over 8 million. There's 2.52 people per household on average in America. So then you're talking about, you know, let's say, let's call it, there's uh, 8.5 million. So there's like 17 million people who can't afford housing, uh, roughly, just back the envelope. Uh, at the same time, the highest rate of increase of price change in average home price over the last several years has been the bottom decile because there's intense competition for these low price homes. And the thing you got to think about with low price homes is if you can't afford a low price home, where do you go? There's nowhere down. There's no more cheap option. If you can't afford a bubble home. Where do you go? And so private equity kind of realized that and they've been buying up all these mobile home parks and raising rents because they have a captive audience. They can't go anywhere else. And so mobile home rents in a lot of states where you've had probably upwards of 10 billion now put into mobile home parks and rents have gone up 25 to 60%. So uh, low valued homes are up, call it seven, 8% CAGR, depending on the state, lower, higher. And mobile home rents are up, you know, 40-ish percent. So call it a, I don't know, eight, 9% CAGR. And wages are not going anywhere near that fast. So 
we're going back to saying, you know, okay, eight and a half million home shortage. We're now at 17 million people who probably can't afford homes. Uh, the prices, whether rents or values, are probably going up high single digits. Um, so you, you can make a pretty good case that and, and income inequality is continuing to spread out, even though wages are doing very well recently. Um, so you can make a pretty good case that you know in a couple of years you're looking at 20, 25 million people who can't afford housing, and so pretty soon you're you're looking at high single digits percentage of the American population who can't afford housing, and that's going to affect. And at that point, people are desperate. They have to vote based on that. Not, it doesn't matter left or right or this or whatever. You can't afford a home, or if you can't make ends meet, you're going to vote for whoever can fix that problem for you. So we're looking at it and saying, okay, now like on a on a you know three to seven year basis, this is a choke point. There's no way out of this. If this doesn't get fixed, it is the only issue in a local election. And someone will run on a campaign saying they can fix it, and someone will be able to get them to vote, and they will win. And it won't matter what else the pot, what else they do, and it won't matter their character, and it won't matter any nothing will matter except that everyone will be forced by economic necessity to be single issue voters. So that's you know six to eight percent of Americans potentially, and that's going to be concentrated in individual states, and those states tend to have very high electoral college weightings. Now move forward to healthcare. So that's, that's an issue. That, that is not a known thing. And so we've made investments in affordable housing as a result because that has to be solved either by the free market or the government will step in. And now we have a time frame for it. Um, moving forward to healthcare, it's not just premiums that have gone up, but deductibles. About half of Americans, a little under, have under $2,000 in liquid assets. And yet deductibles for people, I think for an individual, are averaging fifteen or $1,600. So any healthcare issue you have means you're basically financially ruined. So there's a lot of people, there's an increasing rate of people who have serious but non-lethal healthcare issues that they're not addressing. And again, you're putting, and that's a much larger number than affordable housing. That is, you know, about 40% of the population already in that camp. And so that's, again, another part, another huge portion of the electorate that is over time, inevitably mathematically, Going to be forced to become single issue voters. And I think it's very telling that the day Elizabeth Warren waffled on M4A, her polling numbers and her betting odds were over. Her career, her, her campaign was over. And they keep trying to make it come back. And every time they try to hit Bernie, who's the only one who's been very consistently in favor of M4A, every time they go after him, his poll numbers go up, which is very reminiscent of Trump. Trump was able to essentially monetize a base of people who felt disenfranchised and screwed by the system. And he basically called out like, look, I don't agree with him on a lot of things, but he did a fairly good job of kind of saying, look, this is a, a lot, whole lot of bullshit, the whole thing. And a lot of people empathize with that. And a lot of people voted for him based on that. Beyond that, I'm not saying anything, but Bernie's doing the same thing. Bern and Bernie's polling metrics look very similar to Trump's uh, during the primaries. And so now you have, you know, the two candidates on both sides who are, who are dominant are the non-institutional players who are looking back and saying, this is all bullshit. You're getting screwed. I'm going to fix it. That is a huge, huge issue because the biggest risk to any country is when the, the electorate gets so angry at the other side because they're going through so much struggle that they stop voting in their own self-interest and they start voting out of spite against the other. That is when unfixable policy decisions are made, that's when countries fall. That's also probably the best bull case for crypto. But 
Um, that's what's really scary. And then moving to education between 2000 and 2018, I think, no, 2020, the odds of getting into Harvard, Stanford, et cetera, have gone from seven to one to 22 to one. So the upside skew for people of equal talent has gotten cut into one third of what it was prior. And yet costs continue to go up and debt continues to go up. And the average student graduating from college right now who has student debt is graduating with $29,000 in debt. Now, keep in mind, average student $29,000 in debt, half of the population has under $2,000 in liquid assets. So think about that. Most people are, are, are on, from a financial basis insolvent and you can't go bankrupt out of that debt. So all three of those put together, um, and also the, the, the percentage shifts from college graduates to jobs is not ideal right now. Um, and you can make some arguments about participation rate and how and overall supply. But the point there is that you have, you've had a lot of creeping social issues that are economic in nature that have been vague and abstract and long-term. And the thing I'm saying in my letter is, no, they're here now. This is, you know, we've ignored this. We've kicked the can for a long time. I'm not saying it's a doomsday scenario, but I'm saying people need to get really serious. People need to stop being tribal. We need to cut this left versus right nonsense, and we need to actually start fixing problems, or they're going to be really bad. And we're, and it's this is not 2% of people have a problem, 5% of people have a problem. 40% of people in this country, you can argue, have a problem. And that is not sustainable in a Republican democracy. So those are huge macro issues. And it's disturbing to me that the markets aren't, you know, caring about them. But it does make sense because the composition of the markets and the composition of venture capital are the firms that are doing very well because they're very capital light. But if you look at things like uh, look at Ford reporting the other day, you know, old school businesses that have large employment bases that are capital intensive are doing quite poorly. So how do you get rich off this information? Uh, you know, uh, if venture capital, you know, Mark Andreessen would say we need to invest in startups that are uh, disrupting value chains in healthcare and education and construction um, and software and seed the world. What, what's the hedge fund equivalent? What do you invest in or what do you short or how do you capitalize on this? All these things are creating. What we're looking for with all this is we want to have a long-term view, a three to five or more year view of where we think the general trend is going. When we take positions, it's based on where pricing and different things are to allow us to basically capture some sort of mean reversion factor off of a long-term momentum factor of something that we like. So we've invested in, we, we've held a, a, we've been invested in a company called Skyline Champion, which is the second largest maker of mobile homes and, and modular housing in the U.S. Um, I've seen a lot of startups trying to do modular. I have not seen one that I'm very impressed with yet, I, but I'm still very open to seeing more of them. It just, it's a very tricky business because of zoning. So on the government side, if, if we can fix zoning, and I don't even mean like specifically San Francisco, everybody ramps up about San Francisco, but you know, the, the, the games that happen in local government about stopping affordable housing from being put in everywhere in places like Michigan are crazy. So that needs to be solved. Um, so we like, we like manufactured housing. The manufacturer, I think REITs that own mobile home parks have done well. The manufacturers have done well. Some of the suppliers have done well. We're also, you know, kind of structurally short overpriced homes in whatever way we can express that view um, because the salt tax issue is, is a disincentive and also the starter home market is increasingly lower ASP and there's some home builders that are building $800,000 starter homes and that's just not a market clearing price. Um, and there's a labor shortage, which is going to make it really hard to clean that up. There's a lot of opportunities that you can't do in liquid markets, but have kind of bank shot effects. Um, so... You know, healthcare costs. A lot of times, people are consuming less because they're spending more on healthcare. So you have to monitor healthcare spending and consumer spending. 
because they're kind of you know two sides of a seesaw. Uh, if healthcare spending goes up, uh, consumer spending necessarily has to come down. It's a fixed amount of money. Uh, and yeah, there's some flex on credit, but you can monitor all those things and you can kind of time and tell what's going on there. I think the biggest opportunity that we can't take advantage of is, you know, the pedigree system in education, uh, the value people are being delivered in education for their dollar is dreadful. And the unlimited supply of student debt has caused no pricing accountability, no quality accountability, no job placement accountability. Um, and so whoever can start the first, you know, coding boot camp or like uh, Austin Allred or whatever has that, uh, you know, some of these kind of new fangled schools. Yeah. Whoever can figure out how to start one of those that has reliable job placement at scale is going to make a lot of money, especially if they can figure out how to make it affordable. Because I think the higher education model is permanently broken. And uh, because in order for in order to get fixed, you would need such insane austerity at universities that it would just break the whole system. It doesn't make any sense. So I don't, you know, some of these things, I think a lot of the problems we have in the United States is we have so much legacy infrastructure from past cycles, past economic cycles, that in order to fix things, you first have to destroy. And there's too many people who would be harmed by that. So you can't change it. Same thing in healthcare. The largest contributor to healthcare costs going up is our administrative costs. So anyone who can automate the absolutely immense regulatory compliance hurdles of doing any healthcare business uh, is going to make an enormous amount of money. Let's talk about the uh, the 2016 and 2020 election and their effects on on market and, and the current macro fundamentals. Let's compare and contrast them. Sure. So important thing to understand about uh, electoral cycles is the sentiment impact is uh, a lot more important than the impacts themselves or the policy changes. The policy changes are nice, but it's a lot about business confidence. People managing businesses are worried about potential regulation. They will not invest capital because their downside skew is immense. If they're not worried about regulations, they will invest a lot more aggressively. And so typically when you have a Republican go into uh, office, you want to you know, bet that business activity will increase because people are not worried about a Republican trying to regulate their industry, generally speaking. When a Democrat goes into office, you want to invest in firms that have the most sophisticated regulatory Operations, so huge back offices, things like that. So, I mean, look at United Health stock during the Obama years; just crushed it because they could navigate all that and game very, very Byzantine regulations really well. And so, you know, since since 2016, the other thing is, you know, Trump figured out that if you have an outrage or a or a hot button issue, it will, you know, they will just tear you apart for it for days and days. But if you have one every hour, they can never pin you down for one. And so he's figured out this conveyor belt of controversy can really just paralyze the press, the government, everything. And whether it's intentional or instinctual, he's figured out how to hack media like no one else ever else has. And he's rendered the press and the government completely ineffective. People are very upset about that, but they have no efficacy, zero. Um, And I'm not saying that as a partisan one or the other. I'm just saying show me any show me any losses he has taken and i can't find any um and this is for a guy everybody says is an idiot people are people are always saying that and i'm like cool he's got zero l's um and maybe he is maybe he is but goddamn he's good at whatever the hell he's doing on this other side 
his behavior structure is so off-putting to so many people, combined with those macro dynamics I was just talking about, where people are in a really desperate position. I am extremely concerned that he is coiling a spring towards that risk scenario where people are no longer voting their self-interests, they are voting out of spite for the other. And so I think it's not surprising, based on that view, that the two strongest candidates are Bernie and Trump. And when Trump, you know, Trump got on the Fox debate stage because he was given an enormous amount of media time by principally leftist channels. And he was incredibly entertaining. He was funny. I remember I thought it was a joke. It was the funniest thing ever. And then he got on that Fox stage and he WWE trash talked all these guys into the ground and people loved it. He became a meme. The Republican Party did not want him to win. They tried to take him down. His poll numbers kept going up. And now it's his party. The same thing is happening with Bernie right now. Bernie is not as off-putting, but he's executing the same strategy. He's going in there. And I think this just shows you're seeing politics move more and more to the polls. The nice thing right now is that regardless of what happens in this election cycle, the legislative slide remains a stabilizer. If Bernie wins, he's going to have a hard time doing anything with that Senate. Trump is going to have issues with Congress. And so I don't really see them being able to pass major legislation that's very damaging either way in this next cycle. But I do, my biggest concern here is not this election, it's 2024, 2028. What happens if Trump wins again and this and none of these problems get solved, the people get more and more desperate and more and more outraged? Who runs in 2024? It's not we're not in a mean reversion environment. We are not going to go back to having we're not going to have Mitt Romney run again. It's not going to happen. And the media is so incentivized to push people to the polls. And so I think the most important thing about this election is not this election, it's how it sets up the next election because we're at a point where Nothing matters until it really matters. And I think we're taking a lot of tail risks societally and governmentally right now. If Trump wins, I think the market will continue to rally. I think we're going to continue to go exactly in the path we're on right now. And I think that's going to be awesome for financial markets participants for you know a couple of years, but um, barring a recession. But I think it makes 2024 really scary. And I think if Sanders wins or whoever wins on the left that people will freak out initially, and then basically nothing will change. I think Sanders will be incredibly ineffective. I think he'll be unable to do anything in the office. But I think broadly speaking, there'll just be less chaos probably because he'll say all sorts of stuff and he won't be able to do anything and people will go, okay, cool. And you know, he'll do a lot of finger wagging. It's a very scary time if you're thinking past one election cycle is my view. And, and same, what's so scary about what happens in 2024 or 2028? Because I think if we don't have major reforms, I don't care if it's the left or the right, if we don't have major and effective reforms, what you're seeing globally right now is, is a rise of populism. And populism itself is not the problem. The problem is when populism morphs into the search for a strong man. So you're seeing things in Turkey and other countries, and there is an increasing ability for very scary sociopaths to stand up and make absurd promises and take a level of power that our system was not designed for. And a lot of people don't like Trump and they look at Trump and they say Trump is that. And no, like Trump is not that. You don't want to know what that is. And if you look at what happened in Turkey, that's the downside scenario. 
really, really scary scenarios if we cannot address these core problems that so many people are having. They will vote a monster into office. We as a people will vote a monster into office if we are desperate enough. And I think what people don't realize, especially in the financial hubs, is that's already probably 30 plus percent of people. Let's um, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about some of the uh, how you evaluate management. So the how you interview management, the questions you, you ask, and maybe some of the, the the glaring red flags you've encountered when diving to management. On the flip side, um, the unusual behavior that you recognize as strengths. Oh yeah. Um, so most important for, thing for me, like number one, number one is consistency. So we try to find everything somebody said, and it's not that they don't. What you'll see a lot of times with bad management teams is they're serial revisionist historians. They say something's going to happen. They say they're going to do this. They do something else. They don't acknowledge they did something else. And they sort of describe what they said they were going to do and what happened is different. And those people, the problem is it's not only that they may be lying to you. It's that they may be lying to themselves. That's what you're really concerned with. Somebody who lies to shareholders or who like, you know, tell stories is is one thing and you can underwrite that. And actually being a good storyteller, maybe not in a deceptive way, is a very good edge. But people who maybe are deluding themselves about their own performance are the people who get really, really hurt. And people who continuously make excuses about why they're losing are is really, really dangerous. And so you have to be balanced about, look, if a meteorite hits someone's factory, you go, okay, like that's just not your fault. Like that really sucks. But we've seen management teams that will, let's say, buy assets in Europe or Asia with extreme exposure to Chinese auto manufacturing. And then Chinese auto manufacturing rolls over and they go, oh, uh, that's not my fault. And we'll go, yes, it is. You allocated capital. You made a bet on Chinese autos and you were wrong. And then they do it again and then they do it again and then do it again. And they either are not intelligent or honest enough to understand the bets that they're making and yet they're allocating hundreds of millions of dollars. You see this all the time. Um, so consistency, clarity of thought, internal and external consistency are incredibly important. We like to, when we find management teams, we find management teams who don't always win, but are incredibly honest and consistent. I will invest in that person over somebody who I have questions about, who has a more winning record every day of the week. So that's really, really important. We really like management teams that have a, 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 you know, there's, there are passive management teams and active management teams. There are management teams where the business happens to them and they use a lot of passive language and um, they're not really trying to drive the bus and there are management teams that have very specific intent and they have very specific plans to execute and they track things and, um, and there's a balance. You don't want to micromanage, but we like people that have a very active leadership style who are really involved in the business who understand what's going on from the customer all the way to the C-suite. That's really, really important to us because things can change so fast right now. Well, things can always change fast, but things can change so fast right now that if you as a CEO do not understand what the average customer relationship is like, if you do not understand what the middle management structure is like, that is leaving an opening for a disruptor to come in and just absolutely crush you. We look a lot at kind of not just what management is doing in terms of their short-term financial results, but how are they thinking strategically? Um, so there are some guys who, you know, they're unwilling to take short-term risks for long-term gains. And it's not that we don't like or like those guys. It's just, you have to understand who those people are and really 
you know, in some businesses that maybe makes sense. Like if you're running, like if you're running a doctor's office, you need to make sure the day-to-day experience is very consistent for your patients. You can't really like try to overhaul the whole thing overnight. So for example, in like in hospitals, when they want to get new equipment, they have to retrain the whole staff. And so they have to generally swap out equipment wing by wing so they can do the retraining and shuffle everything over. And it's very hard to do big changes overnight. So how they think about short and long-term risk is really important. And then we pay a lot of attention to compensation. This is something that I think VCs, some of them understand really well, some of them don't understand really well. I want definitely want management teams to be comfortable, to be paid well, yada, yada, yada. You know, I don't want them to be rolling around in cash, but I pay a lot of attention to ownership, structure, holding periods, all of that. And I'm really, really not okay with things like um, some founders recently have taken out loans against their stock and then sold sold stock in a tax efficient manner where people believe they're investing in a founder that is so bullish they bought more stock when in reality they unloaded a lot of stock via SPVs. And there's been a big trend of both VCs and founders unloading their stock by SPVs to family offices. And I will never invest in one of those deals. It's it just that the incentives are really messed up and, and, you know, maybe there's two, three, four X left in the deal, but it's usually not a good sign when the founder who's now running a five or $10 billion company decides, okay, right now I want to spend an enormous amount of time um, setting up complicated legal vehicles and cross-border credit agreements so that I can dump $500 million of stock versus running his company. Where are the, where are the, where are the focus and priorities? And you can tell a lot, not just by how much stock a management team is buying or selling, but how sophisticated is the mechanism they're using to do that. There are some things you see in like forum fours that management files as a head fund guy where an enormous amount of thought went into it. I mean, very sophisticated, a lot of advisors. And you can tell that like that CEO spent multiple days figuring out how he's going to sell his stock. That's a different signal from a guy who's like, yeah, sell you know, 10 basis points of my position every month. So I have some cash so I can buy a house and get my wife a new car or something. You know, there's different signals. There. So we pay an enormous amount of time to the, uh, to the structure of compensation in addition to the absolute amounts. I think that's really, really important. Um, we want people who are not starving, but we want people who are, who are really like, I would like to get rich by backing somebody who's going to get super rich. And if I see anything other than, and on the flip side, you can also see new management teams come in on the public markets where they take very interesting compensation agreements. Um, and so a position we own right now is in Bed Bath & Beyond, and the head of marketing from Target came in there and is taking a very interesting compensation structure where uh, if the stock works, he's going to make an absolutely ridiculous amount of money. Um, and if it doesn't, well, he just like blew his career up for no reason. So we think that's a really, those are really interesting indicators to dig into a business. If you see a guy who has a very stable, good career at a great business, put it all on black, more or less. That's a really interesting setup to look at businesses. Because you put the words humorous next to glaring red flags. Are, are, are there any glaring red flags regarding management that we should, uh, that are worth mentioning? Or We don't like anytime anybody's dumping stock hand over fist. We like to know that managed money is alongside us, whether we're, it's private or public. Anybody bailing out is is really not a uh, not a good sign. Um, excessive compensation is not good. Um, but I, I will say, like you know, we've observed this a lot in the hedge fund space, and it happens in other um, environments. And this is more important in early stage. But sometimes you have a founder 
that is a little chip on their shoulder. Maybe they were disadvantaged or something and they start to experience some success. And at the beginning, they bring in a couple other scrappy people and then they start running an actual company. And the second they start to make real money, they have a, a major, major ego problem. And this can kill companies more than anything else I've ever seen is they start to feel vindicated that they were right and everyone else was wrong. And they start to treat people poorly. They stop wanting to compensate people. They start viewing everyone else as a commodity. They start thinking, how do I make more money? Why should I pay this person more? I could get someone cheaper. They start destroying, they start burning bridges without realizing it habitually. And I've seen this kill so many hedge funds. I've seen this kill so many companies, especially when the company starts to scale past what one person can manage, when there needs to be sophisticated delegation. When you have a guy who has a pathological chip on his shoulder and he's a control freak and the thing moves past what he can manage, it's pretty rare that that's going to work. And I think, you know, when you're thinking about, when you're a hedge fund guy, you're always thinking about hedging the downside, managing downside risk. But in, in a lot of businesses, when you're an operator or you're investing in a startup, upside risk is as important as downside risk, meaning if things start to work, how is it going to change? How is the founder's personality going to change? If on paper he's worth half a billion dollars or $5 billion, how's it going to work when he's famous? How's it going to work when he's taking home all this cash? How's it going to work when he has sycophants all around him? When every, when, when, especially when you have somebody that has always felt like an outsider who all of a sudden is a god in a lot of people's minds. That changes people. That really affects people. And you have to manage that risk and also the ability to recruit people and build a team and work with more sophisticated systems. And also, as you build a firm, you have to do a lot of things that are not your core competency. If you found a company as a coder, by the time it's a hundred person company, you're not coding most of the time. You are managing all this other stuff. And the problem is a lot of times when you're evaluating a company, the thing you're evaluating the team for when they launch is not what they actually have to do to build a large business. That is, um, you know, really, really important. And I think a lot of people don't think about that enough. And the same thing on the hedge fund side, if you're building a hedge fund or you're building a VC fund, you and a partner making investment decisions by yourselves is is totally different from managing a team, from from managing a lot of, I mean, having going from having 10 LPs or 10 investors to having 100 to having 200, um, very, very different. And so you have to really do the work upfront to build the systems necessary to scale all that stuff. And I think it's a good indicator when a uh, mentor of mine used to say, you have to prepare to succeed. You have to do the groundwork so that you can scale, so that you can maintain culture, so that there are practices around that, so you're not affected by that stuff. But a lot of people don't do that. A lot of people don't think about it at all until it happens, and then they're really unprepared for it, especially younger founders or founders who have, have had rough goes and come in with a chip on their shoulder, or entitled founders. Um, you know, entitled founders who always thought they were smarter than other people can be extremely dangerous when they actually start to get success because maybe they had one insight when they started the company, but now they're a large company and they're competing with serious people. And they think that because they grew a business from 1 million in revenue to hundred million in revenue, that they are now smarter than a guy who has 5 billion in revenue that can get you killed. I mean, that's like not training and going in and fighting Muhammad Ali. And as you move up the rankings, you got to understand the level of competition you're going to face is going to be a lot more aggressive. And, and the other thing is, as I was saying earlier about the theory versus the practice, as you move on up and up, the types of body shots people throw when they're competing against you change. And you don't know the metagame at all. The fact that you've built a startup, you've built a small firm, 
that's great, but you are not prepared to fight masses of the universe. You do not know the depths of the insane bank shot plays they will make if they're lying against you. I mean, I've seen people shut down people's vendors, people's suppliers, people's LP bases, poached employees, um, you know, to the extent of the dirty stuff I've seen happen, the clean stuff, the viciousness. It's surprising to a lot of people. Yeah. You've got to really be prepared for that. Yeah. I, I want to shift to how you guys evaluate markets. You guys have to get smart on new markets all the time. So I'm curious, what are some of the different frameworks that you use? You mentioned maybe your market structure, market risk. Uh, you mentioned earlier, you know, what, what's, uh, what the industry changes versus what, what stays the same within an industry. Uh, uh, in, is, how, how do you, how do you think about that? And then, then I'll get to online dating as an example. Sure. So, um, how we evaluate the, the two things, markets and, and, uh, investing in them are two different Basically, There's two forms of analysis and one we would call maybe technical analysis and that's not just te- that's not charts. That is who's trading the market. What are their incentives? How do capital flows work? What are the agency risks in the market? What, you know, how do things react to things historically? What, you know, you need to have some experience in the marketplace. Just like if you were a physical merchant in the market, you need to understand how people are behaving. And that, and that is a, that's a very, you can do quantitative analysis, but you need to do the qualitative work. And this is where a lot of people, I think, who are data science background people, and, and I have a bit of a data science background. This is where you can get in trouble because the data will say something, but you don't know why. And so if a meta variable changes, your data analysis is trash. And especially for stuff where you have data, usually you have data for five or 10 years. So you don't have the context of what the setup for the, you don't know the function that's producing those outcomes. So I think you've got to do a lot of qualitative and quantitative work around what makes a market move, what are the buyer decisions, all of that type of stuff. If you're going to think about investing in anything, it's in terms of evaluating a, a market in terms of fundamentals, we have two main parts of the process. The first is a research process, and we call it, we do a literature review. You want to read everything you get your hands on, um, company stuff, academic stuff, government stuff, anything and everything you get your hands on. You want to really do your homework so you know what you're talking about. One of the best pieces of like that example I can think of is the Jewel founders who went through the legal documents around these cigarette settlements and found out, found all this nuanced information about how the nicotine market worked. I'm making a statement on the outcome of Jewel, but they did really good market research early on, which is why they were able to grow so fast. And so I think going and doing the full literature review, doing that research, and when you do that, our process is to write down questions every time we have them. And it's just, I wonder how that works. Why does the person do this? Why is it that way? What happened? What would happen if somebody did this? All these different little different angles and looks. And then we have, and then the second step is what we call information gaps, which are hyper-specific nuanced things where either I want a more nuanced understanding, I want data, I want context, I want to talk to people in the market about why do these things happen, or sometimes when you read historical accounts of things, you kind of go, I don't really think that's the way it happened. I mean, that's probably the fact list, but what was the color behind why that happened? What were the personalities? Particularly when you see irrational or seemingly irrational decisions. So then we go to an enormous amount of interviews and we go talk to everyone we can, and, at the, and, and all through this process, we want to have no opinion. We just want to understand. We're not coming in with a hypothesis. We want to really iterate research till we think we have a comprehensive view. So once we've done a lot of information uh, gap work, 
in terms of just really filling out the nuance of how this thing works and how historical failures and historical wins have worked and all the different games people play. We want to come through and have a list of what we would call uh, key investment factors. So key investment factors are kind of between five and 25 things that if a company can nail these things, um, the company's going to work and or the company's going to fail if they don't. And the basis for that allows us to build a system around when we would invest in a company or not invest in a company. And then we build that system. And then when those things are triggered, we go long or short the stock and we size the position based on the setup there and what else is in the book and what we like in the market. And that's kind of our approach. And so it's, it's 90 plus percent research and like 2% trading. I want to get into online uh, dating market. It's something you, you've written a lot about. I'm curious what you, in your research, you found is the most surprising conclusions that uh, that people even familiar with the OkCupid okay blogs may not uh, may not fully appreciate about about the, the market uh, on a macro and then uh, on micro the day to day of dating. Yeah, so you know our you know as I said in the research section, we try not to go in with a hypothesis, but you always have gut feelings about you know it probably works this way, or right? I'm wondering about that. And I assumed that these were just Skinner box manipulation dopamine games that had not necessarily a negative impact, but were not productive and were very similar to slot machines. And they are similar to slot machines. But what was really interesting was even though we saw marriages and things declining in 18 to 25, which is a very positive thing because people's brains aren't formed and they don't have any economic background and they don't, they don't know who they are yet. They don't have any basis to form a family. Um, by the time you get to 30 to 35, people were getting, people were getting married and the divorce rate was declining. And when the more we thought about it, if you think about dating as liquidity and market transaction volume, um, there's more efficient pricing happening and people are getting married if they choose to get married with way more information than any historical generation of humans ever in terms of what can they deal with? What can't they deal with? Um, what their preferences are. And also people are moving in together more with people before they get married. And, but the rate of people who live together are getting married is going down, meaning that's another trial um, before the marriage decision. And so now there's so many gating items in order for you to get to a marriage that you probably have 10 or 15 times the amount of experience that you did, you know, two generations ago when you get married, probably a lot more. And um, it's leading to better outcomes, we think. And also, there's ne- no one in our generation is ever going to ask the question, I wonder what else is out there. You know what else is out there. You're really tired of it. And, and a big factor in why, you know, in the early, in the 18 to 25-year-old bracket, dating is very competitive. It's very stressful. It's very brutal. But by the time you get to 30, 35, 40, you're tired. You've been out enough. Like, you know, like, the novelty wears off. And, and at that point, people are really looking for whatever it is they're actually looking for. Not everybody's looking for marriage. Not everybody's looking for this, that, or whatever. But whatever somebody's looking for, most people tend to stop wanting to just do random one-offs and want to start you know, having something um, a little more serious on average. There's a lot of exceptions. Um, but for people who are you know, any normal, any, any, any unique uh, relationship preference, they can find that and, and, that, and that's happening. And, and I think it's leading to basically to more satisfied outcomes in the long term. If you're, you know, polyamorous and whatever, then you, you, you can do that. And that's great. So it's, it's just giving a lot more agency. Uh, that was big. And then the side, the bigger thing was that uh, this is not in the, in the U S U S is just, you know, politically charged topic. 
But in, in emerging markets, in the Muslim world, in Southeast Asia, it's the first time in human history in a lot of countries where women have had agency over their own sexuality because they can date people who aren't their dad's son's friend or their dad's friend's kids or their brother's friends or something. They have a huge pool. Um, and so women who aren't even allowed to go out by themselves are able to get access to hundreds of thousands or millions of potential dates and say no to them with no social risk or physical risk. And that allows them to not have to participate in power-based social structures that have existed for, in some cases, thousands of years. And I don't think you can put that genie back in the bottle. It's not an overnight thing. It's not a one-day, one-week, one-year thing. But I think on like a decade basis, I think it's a huge deal because in countries where you do not have a liberated female population, it's half your population. It's not complicated math. You liberate women. They're participating in the economy and have equal rights. It is an absurdly powerful economic force. And then the fact that the economy does better has a reflective effect on on you know more human rights. And I think it's a huge, huge macro deal. So those are the two things that really stuck out to me. Yeah, totally. If, if we're here talking in 2030, how do you expect the market to, to evolve, the dating market? I think what's essentially going to have happen is I think that the large companies are forming data moats. I think the different applications are just different UIs based on specific customer cohorts, specific preferences, so the user preference. The use case for the different form factors or apps are different, but the data mode is is, is massive, and I, I think that there's a natural network effect among dating companies. I think it's very unlikely that in the near term, and there's so much um, availability bias or familiarity bias in online dating. Nobody's Nobody really wants to join an unknown dating site unless they have a lot of social proof around the new site. So like if a bunch of people you know start a dating app and they're like, hey, all of our cool friends are on it, you might join that. But you're not going to join something if you see a Facebook ad for it. So I think there's a natural network effect here. I th I'm not concerned with the churn at all. Some people are like, well, every time it works, you get out of the app. And I'm like, yeah, but how many relationships work and how many new people come into the pool every day and how many people are not on online dating yet? And actually, the fastest growing cohort of online dating right now is 50 plus years wow. old. So I think it's going to be uniform. I think um, there's going to be a lot of individual apps under one company or two companies. I think it's going to be fairly concentrated, but there's there will be, you know, age-based cohort groups. So there's, you know, some older ones, there's some younger ones, there's some ethnic preferences, there's some lifestyle preferences stuff. Um, I think you're going to continue to see different little permutations of, around what is the connecting node or what is the edge between two nodes that we're connecting people on. So I'm seeing some startups that are doing really interest-based matching. So, you know, if you and somebody else both like rock climbing, match you based on that. If you and someone else both like French food, it'll match you and it'll also give you a 20% discount to go to a good French restaurant, you know, things like that. I think there's going to be a lot more monetization opportunities, but I think it's just going to be like finding a, man, this, I mean, if somebody put up that joke site of Amazon dating the other day, did you see that? Yeah, it's good. Right. So I, I think that's not, not, I think that's not, not how it's going to turn out. Um, where I think finding a date is just going to be like going on Amazon and selecting it. I think they're going to get to a point where however you want to get to a date, whatever type of person you're looking for, it's going to get a lot more efficient around matching. And yeah. I also think it's going to serve you up opportunities for here's a good date idea. Here's a discount. Here's a ticket. Here's an event. Here's a shared hobby. You guys want to go to yoga together. You guys want to go to a 
wine and cheese place. You guys want to go see a jazz show. You want to go to stand up comedy. Yeah. You want to go to a metal concert, whatever you want to do. Yeah. It's going to know that it's going to show it to you. I also wouldn't be surprised if there are apps. I'm seeing some startups try this, but apps that kind of continue on with you after the first date. Interesting. That act as sort of a concierge or relationship coach yeah. in some sense. I wouldn't be surprised if that happened. Yeah. I, I, two observations there. One is, I'm cur- this is a sort of a controversial topic or some people might be offended by it. I'm curious in like a couple decades or something, or if not sooner, dating and sex will be more decoupled because right right now uh, on, yes. on apps and what that will mean. I'm curious if you have any observations about that trend from a app perspective and, and business perspective. And then two, uh, I'm curious if match is sort of, uh, an accident in terms of, you know, uh, this conglomerate of, of apps for an industry, or is that a model that should apply for recruiting or other industries, um, in terms of building a bit, can the match for X, uh, you know, business work. So on the first topic of, I think that what you will see is stratification. So you're going to see, intent-based matching. So I think over time, whatever very, you're going to be able to put an astonishing level of specificity into what you're looking for. So if you're looking to get laid, that's going to be an option. But if you're looking for somebody who can, who wants to go skiing with you every weekend, every winter, it's going to also find you that if you want to find a yoga partner, it's going to find you that if you want to find somebody who likes plants, it's going to find you, but whatever you want to do, uh, it's going to find you somebody that wants to be a life partner for an hour or for, you know, they're going to, they're going to sell companionship, whatever form that takes. And, um, the business opportunity is that there's still so much social stigma and, and whatever views about this, that most people don't want to look at rationally as a marketplace, but the marketplace is trending very rationally. So, what people will do, you know, there's that book, like everybody lies and stuff like that behind the anonymity of a phone, people will show you who they really are. So what people say publicly and people get mad about this and whatever, whatever, um, these apps are going to match people on every possible parameter, uh, period. Um, and the question is when, but it's going to happen. And that's interesting. What was your second question? The match group. Yeah, so I don't think Match Group is a accident at all. I think if you look at all the businesses that IAC uh, has acquired, I think they have a very standardized model for marketplace businesses. I think they understand them very well. I think they they have a trend of liking businesses that have some sort of social friction, where they feel the digital the digitization has already hit the inflection point, but the popular sentiment has not. So you see that with care.com that they just bought, I think with Angie's list, um, Angie's list isn't doing too hot right now, but there's some cases that they might be doing better in a year or so. Uh, care.com was a very popular short seller idea about a year ago because of concerns around safety of, you know, babysitters being sketchy people, which is identical to the concerns about online dating. And, uh, you know, over time, more and more things are going to be digitalized and we're going to come up with either, you know, a combination of safety mechanisms to control for the left tail of bad actors and or the pool gets so large that the percentage of people who are bad actors will just shrink to a freakish outlier. Um, And the other thing is digital literacy. I mean, I, I talk about this with my parents and grandparents a lot is that people who are older don't have anywhere near as good of a read on how to vet if a profile is legit or not. Um, but to like most 22 year olds, they see, they know if something's a phishing scam in a quarter of a second, like they just immediately know fake, 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 fake. Oh, this one's real. 
And so as people age out and age in, you know, the left tail of really weird people are going to become less effective threats because you're going to have to put a lot of effort into being a creepo uh, in order to execute that strategy. And it's probably just not going to make sense in terms of amount of labor necessary to pull off your weird, creepy scam. But, you know, whatever. In terms of uh, matchmaking models, transitioning to other models, um, the reason match is done super well and the reason the other things do super well is you can convince somebody in isolation in privacy, and yet there is also a social network concept to it. I think it's going to be a lot harder. So if you think about it, there's a node that is one person, and then there are edges between the nodes. But when you move into other businesses, the node is a committee. The node is three or four or five interviews. And I mean, still the most effective way to get hired at Google is via referral, despite all of their systems. And the most effective way to get VC funding is to know somebody who knows the VC really well. The most effective way to get hedge fund LP capital is to know somebody who knows the allocator really well. People still value that stuff a lot. I think that the issue is that the the supply in dating, there's a downside social cost of dating within your social circle. So if you introduce one of your friends to another friend, they start dating, it turns out poorly, that's bad for the social group. And historically, that was a risky but positively skewed bet because you could form alliances either literally in the terms of tribes or informally. But now, you know, because there's so many dates available and the overall relationship success rate is down because the opportunity cost is zero, um, people are not doing introductions anymore because there's only that downside skew. That is not the case in introductions in a professional context. Most introductions are made in terms of like, hey, I think this guy's really smart. And, you know, yeah, you don't want to introduce somebody who's going to make a fool of themselves. But I don't think the social feedback mechanism is there to make the thing about online dating is that the social feedback mechanism makes online dating a structurally dominant risk reward versus all other ways to meet. And so when you compare the two options, it's, 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 uh, I think when you're talking about recruiting, so I know some people, for example, who've done a project, several projects where they tried to get access to hundreds of thousands of traders, brokerage accounts to try to mine and figure out who good traders are. And it ended up not working. And I've seen this attempted at least 10 times. It doesn't work because the amount of filters you need to do to filter out not only who's bad, but who's gaming it, who's actually stable, whose lifestyles are stable, all the other things. You end up at the end of the day having to do the same screens you do anyway. And that's that's a huge um, that's a huge problem. And so, you know, all these it's a social cost element. If somebody can handle the social costs, if somebody can figure out how to penetrate through committees and HR departments, then that can change. But I don't see it as being a differentially effective method at least right now. Now, again, going back to the topic of education, we talked about way earlier, anyone who's able to figure out how to place people at jobs based on actual merit instead of all the social games, it's, it's going to be important. But I haven't, I haven't seen anybody have a good idea about how to quantify that because the human side, the soft side is so important. Fit, ability to work with someone every day, day after day, after day is so important. It's way more important than technical abilities. Yeah. So until somebody can really vet out somebody's social ability, like if somebody came to me and they said, I have a recruiting engine. And the one thing I can prove with my recruiting engine is that these people are very easy to work with. Yeah, I would be right. I would be, they don't even necessarily need to be, I would say a culture fit. They just need to be, if they're just nice and easy to work yeah. with, if somebody could verify that to me, 
I'd be like, hell yeah, because I can figure out the technical stuff. That's very easy to screen for. The technical stuff's not the problem. The problem is the human side. So if somebody can crack that, there you go. Yeah. And that might be some social credit score, black mirror, Twitter mining. I don't know, you know, something like that. Yeah. Two more questions and we'll, we'll get you out of here. The last one is about comedy. This next one is about uh, investor psychology, particularly around risk management. How do you approach it? So the thing about risk management is, you know, if you're going to get hit, it's pretty rare that you get hit only once as a thing. And this is different in venture and different businesses. But what really kills you is cascading series of losses. And so something bad happens. A family member gets sick. Your judgment is off. You make an investment. It's a bad investment. That bad investment damages your reputation. You can't raise as much capital. It forces you to make it too risky of a bet to try to win it back. Another mistake. And mistakes just start compounding. And so the main thing that all good investors know, specifically liquid markets investors, is it, you will lose. You will lose frequently. You will look like a dumbass, especially to yourself. If you're honest with yourself, you will frequently look at your work and go, wow, that was wrong. And you always got to try to learn. But rule number one is you can never lose so much money that it threatens the firm or the partner's capital. By partners, I mean clients. And rule number two is try to never make the same mistake twice. But what really, really kills you is when you have a loss that triggers additional mistakes and additional losses. When it starts to domino, that's when people break and that's when people make really bad mistakes. Usually when somebody makes a really bad mistake, they're either on a streak of insane wins or a streak of losses. Concentration is the only exception to that. If you have a massive, massive waiting and it gets hit, you can lose so much money in one bet that or concentration leverage and convexity can kill you. But uh, domino risk is the biggest thing there. So we want to make sure that when we're making a bet, we've defined how much we can lose. So in venture, it's nice. You can lose, you invest $100, you can lose $100. But you could also make $10,000 um, or more. Um, in liquid markets, it's a little differently because things can trade wherever they want. And usually the skew is not that high. So you need to be a little more attuned to the correlation of your positions, embedded expectations, what the actual upside is, what the long-term upside is, who the holder base is, all of that. So for us, you know, we're fairly concentrated. We'll run five to 10% of capital in a single long, and we'll short one to 4% of capital in a single short. And we're trying to lose no more than one or 2% on a position and on a short, no more than 1%. So if you think about on the short side, we're short in one to 4%. So that means we believe on a short, even a short we like, that if we're wrong, we're going to lose 25 to 100%. So that shows you what the skew is on short selling. If you're wrong, it really hurts you. Versus, you know, so we're underwriting 25 to 100% loss on a short business sizing. And on the long side, if we have a 10% position, if we don't, if we want to lose no more than 2%, we're saying 20% downside is kind of max for what we're doing. So that just kind of shows you long and short, there's a very different symmetry there. Um, the other thing you need to do is, you know, doubling down is what gets you killed. Um, you can double down if you start out smaller, but you need to make a decision when you're going to invest. You can never invest more capital than you can afford to lose. And you can never go over whatever whatever that limit is. And so if, if you think something will be volatile or think something will be uncertain, you need to have a smaller position 
particularly if you think the thing is volatile for reasons unrelated to fundamentals, because that means probabilistically it will go down for no reason at some point you'll be able to buy. But if you already have, let's say, half your money in something and it goes down 25% or it goes down 50%, then you have 75% of your original bankroll. If you put the rest of your money in and it drops, you know, another third, now you're down half your money. So it's very easy. If you double down on things on the long side, you end up risking losing all of your money or losing more than you initially committed very, very easily. And it's really a lot more dangerous in things where there are not current cash flows or other like assets that will 100% get bought. Like sometimes just stocks sell off for no reason. But if there's no reason at a like core philosophical level why something must be um, must be bought out, you can get in a lot of trouble just doubling down. On the short side, you have to be very careful. You know, some people at home try to short things. Shorts, when they move against you, the position gets larger. And the problem is shorts can get on the long and the short side, things can get very correlated. And so all of a sudden you could say, okay, I'm short. 10 things at 2% weight of my assets. Um, and then all of them could double at the same time. And I actually know some people that happened to last year. And then all of a sudden you're, you're not only have you lost 20% of your money, but you have a 40% short on that's where you can get killed. So you lost 20% of your money, 40% of your original capital is now short, but actually you have 80% of your original capital because you lost that 20%, which means now you're 50% short. So shorting can get you in really big trouble if you don't know what you're doing. And I really don't recommend people do it at home. But you've got to you have to define what you're willing to risk. And when when you hit that point, you got to get out. It doesn't matter like what you think you're right or wrong about. So those are things. In terms of qualitative side, I think it's very important when you make an investment to explicitly state in a quantifiable or falsifiable way why you're making the investment. And if those things change, get out. Do not quibble. Don't try to rationalize. Now, if you learn information and it's clear that something has changed and you go back in in advance, that's one thing. But if it becomes clear you didn't know what you were talking about, get out because you can always get back in. But if you are if you stay in when things are ambiguous and you don't know what's going on, the second you don't have a really, really tight scope on what's happening, when things don't make sense, you can't price incremental information. And so as things get worse, your ability to take risk will get worse with it. It's like when you're on tilt and poker. If you're playing poker and you start taking losses and you can't read the other guy, and you don't know what's going on, you're having trouble gauging you know, what's going on, you don't know, and you start missing things, you need to leave the table. And it's the same thing with any position somebody's managing, whether it's cryptocurrencies or stocks or bonds or whatever. If you lose your read on the table, get the hell out if you're actively trading. That's really, really important qualitatively. Like you should, you should not be consistently surprised by the things you're invested in. If you if you find yourself being consistently surprised, there's a problem. Speaking of a surprise, that's a good segue into last topic of, of the podcast: uh, comedy. You're you're a comedian. You, you think about comedy a lot. What, what are sort of non obvious ways you you look at comedy, or what makes great comedy, or or why comedy is is so important? Yeah, so it's a super important mental model all investing. So what a comedian does is a comedian comes out on stage and he gives you very small amounts of information. You see the person, you see body language, things like that. You hear a small number of words, his, their inflection, their your word choice, their timing, all these little subtle hints. You're, you're picking up conscious and unconscious things. And also he may give you a little bit of a logical structure. And so you're going, and so what you realize in comedy is that when you're writing jokes, 
the comedian is actually giving you five or 10% of the information in the joke. Your brain is, uh, is filling in the rest of it, 80 or 90%. So the, the perfect joke is something, this is Norm MacDonald's line, the perfect joke is something where the setup and the punchline are identical, meaning the entire joke happens in the audience mind. They show you like, you know, one card and then they just show you the same card again. And the entire reason it's funny is because your brain diluted itself. And so what the punchline does, what a punchline is, the punchline is one single piece of incremental information that shows that your assumptions about the facts and the logical structure of all the information that you heard and filled in is wrong. You're assuming context. They give you a piece of information. You go, oh, that context was wrong. And um, there's another theory around violation in comedy, which is there needs to be something that's threatening or stressful in comedy. And as it gets released, that's the joke. But usually the thing that's being, the incremental piece of information just exposes that there is no threat. Um, and the reason for that is that the neurobiology behind comedy is basically from sparring. So when monkeys and dogs are wrestling and kind of practicing combat skills, they laugh, to indicate to the other partners that everything's okay. We're all good, even though we're fighting. So that's what we have. We have as a stress release mechanism. Um, so if you imagine like a Neanderthal walking over a mountain expecting food, he hasn't eaten in five days, and he walks over the mountain, there's no food, your brain could have two responses. One would be, oh, holy shit, and your adrenaline spikes, you're very stressed out, and all of a sudden your cortisol is really high, and your reaction speed slows down, and your survival probability drops. Another person gets it because of a random mutation, gets a dopamine spike and starts laughing and is really chill and goes, well, that sucks, and let's go walk over the next hill their probability of survival increases. So there's two things you take away from that as an investor. One, similar to when you start losing and there's a domino effect, if you get more and more serious and more and more stressed as things go bad, your decision-making and performance goes down. Every athlete knows this. When you tense up, you're in trouble. Every investor knows this. When you start like looking for a way to win back and you start getting nasty, you're in trouble. If you can remain calm and not let it affect your psychology and continue to execute your process, whether it's a venture process, hedge fund process, whatever. This is true for athletes. This is true for investors. This is true really for anything. If you can remain calm and happy and, and at peak performance, even when you're getting punched in the jaw, it's an unbelievable competitive advantage. So learning to laugh at yourself and learning to take genuine losses is, is, is funny. And you know that doesn't mean you don't have to take them seriously in terms of improving from them. But as long as you've sized your bets appropriately where you can, you've budgeted for losses, then, then it's fine. I think people like Bezos really understand this is that you got to go take really audacious goals and not all of them are going to work and you just do it again. And as long as you can survive each hit, the ones that win are going to outweigh the losses. Um, the second thing is when you're doing, when you're writing jokes, you, you try to think about, okay, I'm going to give the person this information. What information can I give them after that that would make that seem completely ridiculous and make it funny? And so what you're thinking about is what is the minimum amount of incremental information I can give someone to make their entire logical structure, their thesis, absurd? And so as an investor, you can use that very, very much because you can think about what your logical structure is, what the contingencies you're thinking are, what the facts you assume are, and then think what thing, if it came out in the news, or what thing, if I got a call about, would make everything I just said completely ridiculous? And sometimes you think about it and it's like, yeah, if an asteroid blows up the factory, that'd be bad. Or if the CEO woke up tomorrow and like shot a bunch of people, that'd be bad. But those are not super probable things. But sometimes you realize like, oh, if the state regulator um, realized that this was bad for X, we would be over. Or, oh, 
um, the way we're building this market, um, our supplier at any time could just slit our throat or, oh, you start, so you start thinking about what is the scenario that breaks the thesis, but you're really trying to think about, it's really because you come from a joke angle, you're trying to think about what makes it really look dumb. And that, and that's something I think about a lot with the thesis. Cause like when you make an investment, they're not always going to work, but you, you, it helps maintain your psychological balance. If you know, when it's over that you had good reasoning going in and you can learn from it. If you go in and you didn't have good reasoning, it's very hard to improve from that because you didn't have a basis. And also if you're running a business around investing, it's very hard to justify making an investment you had no good reason for. So I think, I think for those reasons, comedy is incredibly important as an investor. Yeah. And also from a society uh, macro perspective, societally, uh, it, it's a way to bring in truths that may not, uh, they're maybe too controversial or maybe the society isn't ready to talk about yet. Yeah. I mean, I think it's always interesting. That was actually a thing with online dating. Comedians are talking about online dating as a norm a year and a half or two years before it became a social norm. And the easiest jokes as a comedian is something that everybody knows is true, but nobody wants to talk about. And so you're looking for those things constantly. So if you actually want to know what's kind of on the edge of popular society, like hanging out at a comedy club is not a bad way to figure that out because they will talk about whatever the up and coming thing is because it's that thing that some people know about other people don't know about and it's surprising it's threatening it's new and that's really easy material to make jokes out of but i mean then the other thing is that comedians are very good at pointing out contradictions and hypocrisies and things like that and there are a lot of people who i don't agree with their opinions but i think they're absolutely hilarious um, on all sides and i also think it's important just like art all art there needs there you have to have a level, a level of education to appreciate it. And I think comedy, for whatever reason, it's viewed as lowbrow. And so people don't bother learning how to interpret comedy. And I think it's actually a very deep field. And if you and that's why there's this phrase, a comics comic. There are people who are telling jokes that are impressive to practitioners because they understand there is an art and a science behind it. And if you understand that, it can make it a lot more enjoyable because you can see what they're trying to do. You can see the structure. You can see how complicated it was. And it can make things a lot funnier, um, at least in my opinion. And it can also make you understand why maybe you, you know, there's some things where people go, oh, I thought that was offensive. And, and you go, well, no, the reason that they did the joke this way is they are trying to do this effect. And, and I give comedians a break. If they if they attempt a legitimate joke and it doesn't land, I think they generally deserve a break. But I do think the line there is, you know, there's a, some people just say really offensive, terrible stuff, and they just think then they go, oh, it was a joke. And I'm like, no, actually, I studied joke theory. That was not a joke. You were just being a dick. So I think that's where the line needs to be. But when somebody actually tries a joke and it doesn't work, you need to understand that you know they're trying to make you laugh. They're trying to entertain you. They're not trying to attack you or attack anyone. Um, and I know a lot of comedians and they're going up every night and they're trying anything they can to try to make people laugh. And, and it's really hard to actually make people really belly laugh and really, really laugh at stuff if it isn't, if there isn't that violation. So if you look at, look up violation theory, comedy, which is, you know, one of the main theories of comedy, there has to be a threat. And so I, I actually really like comedians who say stuff that's on the line because it is risky. If you mess it up, there is real career risk, but if you hit it, and I think one of the highest forms of comedy is when somebody can make someone laugh about something that in any other context they would say is offensive. 
I think that's an incredible art form when somebody, because that's what it's that's what it's about. It's about allowing people to laugh at their pain, laughing at their own pain, laughing at other people's pain, not laughing at the other person, but relieving the stress of the bad things in life. It's supposed to be an enjoyable, positive experience, and you know that's what great comedians do is they allow people to get through the struggles in their life. And, you know, I had a friend once who had cancer and we went to a comedy show together. It was one of the greatest nights of my life. And the comedians growing up there were the raunchiest group maybe I've ever seen. And we had a ball um, because they were dealing with something that I can't even imagine got them out of it for two hours. And I, you know, like I, I will forever respect the art form because of, because I don't know of any other art that can do that when somebody's yeah. in such a bad place that can just, and, and the only way you can do that is you need to have that little spear tip to make someone uncomfortable, to make them engage. Even yeah. if they're engaging originally because they're threatened or angry. And then you hit them with the punchline and that stress comes down, you get that euphoria feeling. And that's what's happening neurologically. Yeah. And that's what it's supposed to be. It's fascinating because people often say that to laugh at something is to disrespect it. And I'm very interested in dark comedy. And I, I think it's the opposite. You're, you're honoring it. To laugh at something is often to acknowledge it as true. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of times when I'm in meetings, I will make some comment about something in markets that, you know, we all kind of know this is BS or we all kind of know this is, or, you know, we make some joke. And when the other person laughs, you know that they agree with you on that. And it usually is acknowledgement, not only that what you said is true, but that they kind of respect the insight. Totally. I think that's a, that's a great place to wrap. Uh, my guest has been Daniel McMurtry. Uh, thank you so much for, for, for coming on uh, the podcast. And uh, for people who want to learn more about you and, and follow your work, where, where might you point them? My Twitter, at SuperMugatu, or uh, my website, TyroPartners.com. Um, you know, always available. DMs are open. And, you know, shoot me an email at the email. and. Uh, on the website and thanks for having me on uh this has been a fantastic episode dan thank you so much for coming to the podcast awesome thank you if you're an early stage entrepreneur we'd love to hear from you please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst 